Welcome to the New Life Philly Podcast. Every week, we share fresh insights as we explore the inexhaustible depths of the Word of God. We pray that you will be encouraged and challenged today as we continue in our study. Let's join in now. We want to do that. Well, let me begin uh, to get into the Word here. Uh, I, I probably said this before at New Life, but I am the middle of three brothers. One two years older, one two years younger. For some of you, you're like, that's what's wrong with him. Correct. A middle child, three brothers. And, and with three brothers roughly in that same age group, you can imagine that for us, everything was a competition. Like everything was a competition. Eating was a competition. Going to sleep or staying up was a competition. Everything was a competition. We were all into sports, so we competed in sports. We, we, we liked to play different board games. We had all these different board games, and we would tally up who was the champion of the most of the board games. Everything for us growing up was a competition. If you said the same thing as your brother at the same time, we would say, you owe me a Coke, right? Jinx, owe me a Coke. And, and, or, or when there was something else, we would have to fight the battle either through slap boxing or through rock, paper, scissors. Some way, everything was a competition for me and my brothers. But there was one ultimate power move that supplanted every other possible power move to win the day and that power move was dibs amen does anyone know anything about dibs getting dibs amen so dibs was the ultimate power move how do we describe dibs well for us dibs was uh what was something where if there was a privilege dad said who wants to sit in the front seat I got dibs right or if something came up and there was only one slot to fill you, you're gonna get it by calling dibs I've got dibs so dibs was the power move here is uh, the definition uh, for dibs dibs is the all-powerful invocation of privilege which must be claimed prior to any other's claim and which allows the claimant the rights and privileges in accord with the aforementioned dibs. That's what dibs mean. You can see the source there of that quote, not hashtag, not really. Amen. What we're going to look at in just a moment is I have uh, three people come up to read scripture for us. We're going to look at three different interactions that Jesus has with different power groups in Jerusalem. And what we're going to see is this. God's got dibs. God's got dibs on your life. He's got dibs on my life. And even when we look at the mess of this world, at the end of the day, my only hope is that God's got dibs. He is sovereign over everything, and he will bend everything in the end to be in conformity with his will. God's got dibs. Amen? Amen. So at this time, I'm going to have uh, Felix Perez and Amy Bathurst and Craig Gabadon come up, and they're going to read the scripture for us. Let's stand together, and I'm going to have 
these brothers and this sister read. You, you can come right into the pulpit area to read. Amen. Amen. And we're not going to ask everyone else to read at the same time. We're just going to be led because this is a long passage of scripture. Brother Felix. Good morning and God bless everyone. Mark 12, 13. Later they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him, they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And Amen. they were amazed at him. Starting at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your hearts and with all of your soul and with all of your minds and with all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandments greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all of your hearts, with all of your understanding and with all of your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Amen. 
While you remain standing, let's uh, pray. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, for your word in the midst of uh, the world that we live in. And we ask, Lord God, that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. We pray for right understanding of your word. And we pray that we would apply it by your Holy Spirit. Lord, be with us in the coming moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for reading. Amen. Praise the Lord, everyone. God's got dibs. He does have dibs on every area of our life. Let me get to the main point of what we're talking about today. A full and satisfying life can only be achieved when we acknowledge God's sovereignty and live to please him. Amen. God's sovereignty, that's his dibs on your life. Uh, let, let me just reorient us. We've been away from Mark's gospel for a while. Uh, Pastor Tim got us back into it uh, last Sunday. But th this section that we're reading from today is during the Passion Week of Jesus. He is continually being confronted in this time between his royal entrance into Jerusalem and his crucifixion on Good Friday by various power groups in Jerusalem. In this uh, scripture, in the scriptures we're reading today, there's four different groups that he is being accosted by that we'll see. But particularly because of the way Jesus was praised when he came in the city, and then particularly because of the way that he went into the temple and cleansed the temple, overturned the tables, the, the, the power groups in Jerusalem knew that they were in trouble, that something's got to change. And so in these confrontations, at least the first two, we'll see that they're trying to trap Jesus because they understand he is a threat to the established order. And so we come to today's scripture. There's three things that we're going to see here about the dibs of God. Amen. First of all, God has dibs over your priorities. Secondly, he has dibs over your eternity. And finally, God has dibs over your affections. Amen. We're going to look at those one at a time. Let's jump in. First of all, God has dibs on your priorities. This first interaction here, Jesus is confronted by Pharisees and Herodians, two groups that didn't want to do much with one another. They didn't like each other at all, but they found a common cause. Amen. Getting rid of Jesus. And so they come together in this common cause. And the first thing that you see as they address Jesus is they give Jesus this over the top, two-faced, hypocritical, false praise. And Jesus sees right through it. They're saying uh, to Jesus, uh, Lord, we see that you're a man of integrity. You can't be swayed by anyone else. You're your own man. You don't pay attention to others. And you teach in accordance with God's truth. They are building up Jesus, but 
he understands that they're not doing this with integrity. They're, they're, they're doing this out of hypocrisy. And so Jesus understands this and he begins to engage them in this conversation. They ask him then the critical question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Jesus begins his answer saying, I know what y'all doing. Y'all trying to trap me in this. So he understands what's going on. They're asking this question. It seems like a good question. But the idea is we want to show that Jesus is on the side of the oppressors. And when Jesus says you got to pay your tax, that will be a charge against him. The people aren't going to like that. And that will give us cause to do what we want to do to Jesus. It's going to make him look awful bad. And what else is he going to say? Because if he says, don't pay your taxes, that's going to be known. And the Roman authorities are going to come down on him. They've got a win-win question for Jesus. They know they've got him trapped. Here's what's interesting about it. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble for saying that you should pay your taxes, but they're already paying their taxes themselves. They're paying their taxes. That's what they are doing. But because of their hypocrisy, there is a disconnect between their beliefs. We really shouldn't do this and actually how they live their lives. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be careful about that. That can be true for us as well. We've got to be careful about a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we're actually walking out our beliefs. Listen, in a politically and religiously and racially polarized culture, it's easy to fall in a critique, in a pattern of simply critiquing others without ever looking in the mirror and considering our own lives. God help us to be careful in that. Jesus' answer is interesting in verse 17. says, then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Interesting word there. A lot of times when I, when I think of this, I, I thought of render to Caesar what Caesar's or give to Caesar or pay, pay the man his money, pay him. But the word that's used there is give back to Caesar. You see, Jesus asked them, okay, does anyone have a denarius? And they all had denarii and someone gives Jesus a denarius and he says, well, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. Whose inscription is it? It's Caesar's. And so Jesus says, well, if it's his, give it back to him. It belongs to him in the first place. In other words, what he's saying is, look, y'all all have these denarii. You all have some. In other words, by your having them, by your using them, by your agreeing to the economic system that Caesar has installed over our part of the world in Palestine, in Jerusalem, by your agreement in using his denarius, you've agreed to be a part of this system. So if it belongs to him, just give it back to him. Get back to him what he ought to get. They are stupefied by that 
answer. But I, I want us to be careful with this because for many people, this answer and this, this question has become a, a reason to make a whole doctrine out of church and state relationships. And I'm not saying that it says nothing about it, but here's what I am saying. This isn't primarily what it's about. It's not primarily about how do you relate to the state. It's primarily about how you relate to God. Look at this. This is Jesus' clear statement. Jesus is saying, don't get it twisted, y'all. Yes, you have obligations in this world that you need to meet, but never forget this. You owe God everything. Pay back, give back to Caesar what belongs to him, but give to God what belongs to God. See, God created you, not just a coin. He keeps your heart beating day by day by day. He holds you together. He keeps you in your right mind. Somebody ought to say, thank you, Jesus, right now. He keeps you in your at least semi-right mind. Amen. He does that. He designed you. He loves you. He redeems you. God is your keeper. Yeah, give Caesar what's his. But Jesus' point is this. God's got dibs on your priorities. God has dibs on your life. In other words, give Caesar his stuff, but remember God's got dibs on your priorities. Listen, one question that I've gotten over the years as a pastor, and I think probably most pastors will get this question from time to time, is a question on tithing. Uh, should I pay my tithe off of my net pay or should I pay it off of my gross pay? Tell me how to do my tithe. And I'm not going to go into that in any deep way today because this sermon's not about that. But the, the idea of the question itself is, is a little bit troubling to me. The idea of the question is, tell me the least amount that I can do and not get in trouble with God. <laughs> Help me understand that. And, and the question of the growing disciple is a different question. The question of the growing disciple is, God, how much can I give to you? Whether it's my time, whether it's my talent, whether it's my treasure, how can I best serve you and glorify you? And Lord, I want to take care of the other things in this world that you've given me to take care of. But Lord, I want to bless you with my life. That question talks about a wrong priority. God has dibs over our priorities. Secondly, not only does he have dibs over our priorities, but he has dibs over eternity. Somebody ought to thank God for that right now. Amen. The Pharisees come to Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians come to him with a political and economic question. But now the Sadducees come to Jesus with a theological question. But all of them are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. God has dibs over your priorities. It's important that we get an understanding of who is bringing this next question to Jesus. This convoluted, crazy question that is about uh, the, the law of God, what's called the Leviterate law, where uh, someone, if, if a man dies... 
uh, and hasn't had a, a son, then his brother has to marry his wife. And they go through this for seven different sons here and, and say, then who's he going to be married to? They're asking this obscure Old Testament question to trap Jesus, to get at Jesus. But who, who's asking it? The Sadducees are asking it. In verse 18, it tells us, then the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection come to Jesus. So the first thing we know about the Sadducees is that they don't believe in the resurrection at all. So as they ask this question about whose uh, husband will be the husband of this wife at the resurrection, they're already setting up to trap Jesus because they don't believe that there is a resurrection. So this is the Sadducees. Who are they? We learn less about the Sadducees in the Bible than about any of these other groups. And in fact, there's very little writing. There's no writing from the Sadducees themselves that we still have. But we learn about them through different historians uh, of Rome like Josephus and others. But the Sadducees were a rich, aristocratic group that made up the bulk of the governing leadership of the Jews in the first century. In other words, they were the main governing group. There were some Pharisees on it, perhaps some other folks on it, but it was mainly the Sadducees who were in that group. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Part of that was that they only believed in the Torah as scripture. The Torah meaning the first five books of Moses. Let's just look at this real quick. The Old Testament, if you ask a Jewish person, they re don't, they don't refer to it as the Old Testament because it is their Bible. The Jewish Bible, they would call Tanakh, which stands for Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. Torah meaning law, Nevaim meaning the prophets, Ketuvim meaning the writings. And so the Sadducees only believed in Torah as sacred scripture. The other books of the Bible uh, in the Old Testament, the other 34 books of the Old Testament, they did not think of as sacred scripture at all. And so the Sadducees were rich. They were extremely theologically conservative. And here's what I mean when I say conservative. They were narrow. The Pharisees and others had different oral interpretations of the law, commentaries, trying to understand and talk about what the scripture was saying. For the Sadducees, they had none of that. In Jerusalem, as we've talked about a lot, going through Mark's gospel, there was a hyper-awareness that Messiah is going to come one day. And when Messiah comes, he's going to wreck shop with Rome. He's going to overthrow the Roman powers. The Pharisees were looking forward to that. The scribes were looking forward to that. The common people of Jerusalem were looking forward to that. But the Sadducees were like, ah, I think things are pretty good right now. <laughs> we, we, we've got power. We've got positions of authority. We've got wealth. We kind of rule over what we can rule over. We're good. We're not in any hurry for Jesus to come or, or for the Messiah to come and turn things over. We like things the way that they are. And so they're coming to Jesus with this question because they, like the Pharisees, 
like the Herodians, want to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus, again, sees through what they're trying to do. He comes to them, and in verse 34, Jesus uses these words in NIV. He says, are you not in error? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You're in error. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Now, how might we say that at, in the New Life Philly version of the scriptures, 2022? Here's my take at that. Y'all are drawing. You're not tracking with the scriptures at all. You've got no clue of the grip of God's power. You see, he, he calls them out. Jesus right here is not playing games. He's not trying to be nice right now. Jesus gives a powerful in your face answer to what the, the, the Sadducees are bringing to him. He's saying, y'all are out of bounds. You don't know what you're talking about. He confronts this thing. He confronts it powerfully. Listen, brothers and sisters, sometimes we do need to call things out. We need to confront stuff for real. There is a, a, a prophetic calling, not just on a pastor, but on the people of God to call out things that, that are dishonoring to God. We need to call things out at times. And here we see Jesus doing just that. But here's what I want you to see in that. Let, let, let me, let me, before I get to that, let me just say this. Before the way he does it, Jesus doesn't just call out everyone in this same way. He does it when he's confronting power and privilege that are together conspiring to use twisted theology to make the status quo work in their favor. In that instance where you've got entrenched power trying to hold back the work of God and the will of God, Jesus comes out of a bag on them. Amen. You're messed up. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. This is not Jesus normal way of dealing with people who are struggling, who are sincerely seeking him. Uh, in that way, he usually comes with a much different approach. But I want you to see this. Every approach that God brings, that Jesus brings, is to awaken people to the reality of their need for him. God's got dibs over your eternity. Jesus now answers their question about all these marriages of these seven brothers to the wives and there are several scriptures in the prophets that would have been very simple because they speak specifically to the reality of the resurrection. But Jesus says, you, you want to go Torah? I'll go Torah to Torah with you. Amen. Toe to toe and Torah to Torah. I'm going to take it right out of the Torah. And he leads them back to Exodus chapter three and verse six. He says, remember the book of Moses. Remember him at the burning bush. What does God say? I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
In other words, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham when he lived and I was the God of Isaac and I was the God of Jacob, but he says, I am. I am. They're long dead. They're long gone. But God says, I am the God. They are still in my presence. They have not gone away. And one day they will be resurrected and redeemed and brought fully back in a, in a new and exciting way. But you guys have messed it all up. You think that eternity and resurrection is going to look just the way it looks here. But I'm telling you, it's going to be different. There's not going to be marriage and given in marriage. And some people are sad about that. Others maybe aren't as sad. I don't know. But, but, but what Jesus is saying is there's going to be something so much greater. And, and, and listen, y'all, I don't, I don't get it fully. But, but there's going to be a communion of the people of God. A love that flows from person to person. A love that doesn't have with it any, any idea of the contamination of sin in ourselves or in another. There will be love and care and belonging in the community of the people of God along with God in a beautiful way. And he says, there will be resurrection and God is the God over your eternity. He's God dibs. My, my, my. They were fundamentally wrong about eternal life. They did not understand it. And, and understand this for the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, it was a good thing for them that there was no resurrection. <laughs> because if there's resurrection, there is ultimate justice. You don't stay in power. You don't manipulate. You don't twist. You don't hurt people and think that at the end of it, I'm good. We're just done. We're finished. No, Jesus is saying there is resurrection and we're all going to have to see and meet face to face with our maker. Jesus puts them on warning. Let me go to this last one. God has dibs on your affections. Verses 28 through 34 tell us a, a different type of interaction that Jesus has. This one is a scribe uh, or a teacher of the laws, it says in the NIV. He is not coming to trap Jesus. He's coming in sincerity to learn and to grow and to know. And so he is coming to Jesus to find out uh, a genuine desire to what Jesus believes. And he asked them this question about what is the greatest commandment. So from this scripture, which is also repeated in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, we get what we call the great commandment. Most of you know of the Great Commission as well, right? The Great Commission in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. That's the calling on the church, but just as much the calling on the church is this great commandment scripture. He's asking Jesus for the greatest commandment. One, give me one, Jesus, but Jesus just can't help himself. He gives him two and we need to learn something by that. Jesus cannot and Jesus will not talk about the supposed love that a person has for God without 
that reality being demonstrated in how we love other people. James put it this way. How can you say that you love God who you've never seen and yet you don't love your brother or sister? Amen. So the greatest commandment is not primarily involved with political policy making decisions. It's not about partisan dogma, but it's about living a life that walks out God's love for others with sincerity. That's what Jesus is interested in. That's the summation of the law. He brings these commandments from two places. One is from the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It's in Hebrew right behind me right now. The Shema. And only in Mark do, does he start with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. In the others, he goes straight to uh, the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But here he starts with the, the basis of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that sets up the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he goes there to one part of the Torah, and then he goes to another part of the Torah. The second is like unto it. It comes from Leviticus chapter 19, 17, and 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in Luke's gospel, when someone questions him on who his neighbor is, he gives us the story of the good Samaritan. In other words, God is saying, if someone is alive on planet Earth and in need, that is your neighbor. You, you can't exclude. You can't say, well, they don't live near me or they're not of the same economic status or the same ethnicity or the same whatever. Fill in the blank. He's saying anyone and everyone is your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe says, wow, teacher, you have answered well. And then the scribe goes into talking about Jesus' answer. In verse 33, he says that loving your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's saying, wow, all, all that we're doing to uphold our religious ways, it all boils down to this. The most important thing is that we love God first and we love our neighbor as ourselves. He gets the writings of the prophet Hosea who said, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. He gets the heart and the truth of the Old Testament. This is where Christianity today is too often missing the mark. We're not simply called for a cause. We're not simply called to make everything better and right in the world, although we are called to work towards that. Amen? And I wish 
that in my life and with my life, and I wish that we as a, a, a corporate unity, and I wish that the church could just work and do it and everything would turn around and make the, the, this world in a moment or in a short time line up with God. But we all know it doesn't work that way. So let me, let me put it this way. We work here for more just and more, um, a more just and righteous world, not with worldly might, not with lies, not with half truths, not with political maneuvering, and not with hate and vitriol for those who oppose us. We're called to do this work by having our hearts more and more in tune with God's heart in such a way that those who experience us experience the love of God. Amen? God God is calling us to be a people who when we interact with, with others, they are experiencing something of the love of God in their lives. Let me just tell a real quick story. I was out yesterday for breakfast with my wife. We went to this place in New Jersey. had never been to it before. It was a 45-minute wait for breakfast. I'm like, Jesus, I don't know about all this, but <laughs> wife wanted to stay, so we stayed and we waited and uh, we ordered our breakfast. And, you know, I, and, and the place was so busy. I, I have a lot of... Um, I just feel a lot of grace for people that serve like that. I've never had that particular job, but I know how demanding it is, and I know how crazy people can be sometimes. And so I made my order. My order came back, and it wasn't what I ordered. It was it was off in a few ways. 95% of the time when that happens, I'm like, I'm going to take the L. That means loss, for those of you that don't know. I'm just going to take the L, and I'll eat it this way. But there was a fundamental and foundational error in the way my plate came back to me. There were onions in my omelet. I'm like, I'll get over that. God will give me strength. But I also, they, they had a choice between greens next to my meat omelet and potatoes, and there were greens on my plate. I don't know if that's the unpardonable sin. I'm not saying that it is, but I wanted me some potatoes. And so I, I, I talked to the, the waitress and I said, excuse me, but, and she looked at the plate real quick and said, oh, that order is wrong. And she, she went back, she got me the right order. It was the best omelet I've ever had in my life. And the potatoes were absolutely delicious. It was so good. And she came back at the end of our meal and said, how was everything? And you could tell. And as I began to open my mouth, she was on pins and needles. Am I going to get blasted, you know, by this guy? I don't know because somebody messed up an order. And I said to her, listen, this is the best omelet I've ever had in the world. And I don't know what you've done with these potatoes, but they are absolutely awesome. And you could just tell she was just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I don't know if she was a Christian or not, but she was like, I didn't get blasted today. We had a nice conversation. That's a little thing. 
But here, here's what I'm getting at with this. We ought to make it our goal that when we interact with people, wherever that is, that people come away knowing they're loved, they're cared for, and sensing the presence of a loving God in their lives. Amen? Amen. Let me close this thing down today. God's got dibs on everything. There's no part of your life, no section of your life or this world over which God does not have sovereignty over. And here's what we need to see. The dibs of God are a blessing and not a curse. As a perfect, omniscient father, it means that he truly knows what's best for you. It means that he wants you to live in a way that you will experience his best both now and forever. Amen. It means that when my conception of truth, when my truth is at odds with God's truth, it means that I yield to the dibs of God and say, this is how I think, this is how I feel, but I see that your way and your will is different and I will be humble and I will bow before you because God, I know you are right and good. God's got dibs and it's good for us. Let me just say this as I close. How can we be so sure (laughs) that that actually is good? That God really does care about you when the things in his word might be in conflict with something that you believe or think is right. Here's how you can be sure. 2,000 years ago, The all-powerful creator God. The one who sustains the world by his own mind became a human being, a baby in Bethlehem. The all-powerful and almighty God subjected himself to sinful people over and over again. He was brutalized. He was beaten. He was destroyed. He was crucified. He was, he was in every way despised and he did it because he loves you and cares about you both now and forevermore. God's got dibs and we ought to say, thank you, Jesus, because you know better than I do. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today for your love and your tender care for us. We ask that you would continue to watch over your church. And Lord, in these difficult times, as we just see how messed up our world is, I pray that you would encourage your people to hold on to the only hope that is real. It's not in a political party. It's not in uh, money. The only hope that is real is tied to the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll hold on to that hope and you will give us wisdom of how to navigate this world. Thank you, Jesus, for your sovereign love for each and every one of your people. Be glorified and exalted among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen and amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord as we get ready to close our... We hope that you've been blessed today by the preaching of God's Word. Join us every week for fresh insights on the New Life Philly podcast. If you would like to reach out to our church for more information, or if there's some way we can pray for you, please visit newlifephilly.net or email newlife at newlifephilly.net. May the Lord richly bless you this week.